0: like Clark said, uh, happy 4th of July weekend, everyone. We're glad you're able to be with us um, today as we are continuing in a series that we started last week. We've been calling a 90-day trek through the Bible. And uh, if you're just jumping in, you can probably just assume from the title what we're doing in this series. We are taking a 90-day trek through the Bible. And so last week we began this, and basically we said, man, for the next 90 days, we actually just want to go through the Bible and, uh, and we wanna kind of survey the entire thing. And so each weekend that we come together here, we're opening our Bibles together from the beginning and we're going all the way to the end, just kind of work our way through it. And we're talking about, man, what's the big idea of the Bible and how are we to understand it? And so if you're a person who maybe has questions about the Bible, or if you're like, man, you know, I've always wondered what's it about and all this kind of stuff, um, this is a a fantastic series for you uh, to have come and joined us in. And so I'm glad that you're able to do that. Um, In addition to going through uh, the whole Bible over the course of this 90 day series um, on the weekends, we've also, last week, we started challenging everyone on our whole campus to begin engaging the Bible themselves. And so last week we threw out some challenges, we threw out some reading plans, and we said, hey, we wanna challenge everyone. Um, all the way from, uh, from the, the children's ministry, Power Kids, up to uh, the student ministries and New Perspective, and us adults. We said, we want to challenge everyone who's part of this campus for the next 90 days to engage in the Bible. And so we gave you some reading plans. Some of them are more challenging than other ones. And I know that many of you guys have started those. And so let me just say that if you started last week and you've made it a full week every day reading the Bible on your plan, let me just tell you, good job. All right, awesome, keep it up. And we're proud of you. I want you to keep it going. Some of you, I I know maybe you started last week or you had good intentions and then somewhere midweek, maybe you kind of fizzled out or you fell off the wagon or or whatever analogy you want to use. And, uh, And that happened. And look, if that's the case, no problem, we get it, right? You can start, just pick up where you left off, just keep going. We want to encourage you to do it. We can do it together, all right, through these 90 days. Um, if you're a person who wasn't here last week and you're like, well, man, I want to jump in on that. Can I, can I jump in as well? Absolutely. And we actually have some reading plans and we have um, some, some different creative resources that are out in our cafe. They're all free. You could just take those and we'd encourage you to jump in. Your 90 days can start today if you wanted to. And uh, we want to encourage everyone to get in the Bible. So the whole series is all about the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And so last week, if you were with us, we started off with just an introduction. And we said, you know what, before we even open the Bible, we need to ask a very foundational and important question. And the the basic question that we looked at last week was just this. We said, what is the Bible? And so we spent the whole week last week just defining what is this thing? And and so we found out some really important stuff. If you were here, uh, we found out, for example, that the Bible is not really one book. Um, It's not one book that was written by one guy at one time. We learned really what the Bible is, it's better to think of it like a library. It is 66 manuscripts that were written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. They've been compiled together. They were written on three different continents in three different languages. And that's the Bible that you have in, in your hands today. And so last week we dealt with a bunch of questions, just foundational questions, like how did we get this library of books that we call the Bible? And, and, uh, and, and how do we know that it's accurate? And how do we know it's historically accurate? And all those things. And we just dealt with some foundational and basic questions about the Bible. I just wanna encourage you that if you missed that talk last week and you'd like to catch up on that, um, you can do that by either going to our website you can watch that sermon there, or you can just get the podcast if you want to. Um, you can listen to that on your drive to, to work or when you work out or whatever. We just covered a lot of really foundational stuff. So that was last week. This week, as we start to start to move forward in our journey with the Bible, I want to ask another very basic question and deal with it today. And here's the question that I want to investigate today with the rest of our time. It's this. What is the Bible about? Okay? So last week was, what is the Bible? Like, what is this thing? Now it's, what is it about? Okay? Um, And so if we're saying, man, the Bible is 66 manuscripts that are put together, uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, what is the common thread that connects all of this together, right? Is there a comprehensive way to understand it? So if you had a friend come up to you, for example, and they said, hey, I know you go to church, or I know at least you went to church that one day, Um, uh, what is the Bible? Like, what is it about? How would you answer that question? That's a tough question to answer, isn't it? Because the Bible has a lot of stuff in it. It's got some interesting stories in it. It's got some weird stories in it, let's just be honest. Um, it has some really motivational stuff in it about Jesus. And, and there's some really fascinating things. And then, then there's, there's stuff that's just perplexing and confusing. And there's parts of it that seem archaic. And some of you are like, isn't there parts that are like legend, legends and myths and stuff like that? And so what ties it all together, right? And how are we to kind of understand this book? So that's what I want to talk about today. What is the Bible about. And I believe that if we want to answer that question, what is the Bible about, the best place for us to start is all the way in the beginning. And so if you got your Bibles, let's start our journey together. You can take your Bibles with me. We're going to open up to Genesis chapter one. And this morning we're going to begin in the beginning. All right. We're going to look at Genesis chapters one, two, and three. And so if you got your Bibles, I would really encourage you to flip with me to Genesis chapter one and the Bibles that you have. Um, If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that is no problem. We have some Bibles that are available for you in the chairs, and you can grab one of those Bibles in our chairs. You're gonna find Genesis chapter one on page one, okay? So if you have a hard time finding Genesis chapter one, you can turn to your neighbor, and they can hit you upside the head. It's really fine, I'm just kidding. So Genesis one. Go ahead and get there, flip there, Genesis one. So in my opinion, uh, one of the greatest drama action thrillers of the past several years as far as movies go is the movie Taken starring Liam Neeson. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, but it is one of those edge of your seat thrillers where you are on the edge of your seat with suspense, right? You can, you can sit in a chair if you want to, but you don't need the whole thing. You just need the edge because it's just that intense. And in the movie Taken, if you've, if you've never seen it before, Liam Neeson plays a retired CIA agent um, who has a daughter, a teenage daughter, who he really, really, really loves And so when the movie begins, it kind of opens up and it introduces you to the characters. And the picture that you get when you watch the movie taken, at least for the first part of it, is at the beginning, everything seems like, for the most part, it's relatively peaceful, right? So you're introduced to Liam Neeson. He is a retired CIA agent, and so he's now living the retired life. So he's no longer going around the world, hunting down bad guys and killing them. Now he's at home barbecuing, having a good time. His daughter, we're told, his teenage daughter who he loves a whole lot, is happy and safe. She actually lives in a mansion with her mother and Liam Neeson lives close by. And, and when, you're, when you're introduced to the characters of the movie at the beginning, you get the idea that things are relatively at peace. Things are good. You know, Liam Neeson is happy, his daughter is happy, everyone's happy, everyone's getting along and things are good. Well, of course, it doesn't take much time uh, for, for that piece to be broken. And, and it begins, the peace is broken, by a rebellion. And so Liam Neeson's daughter lies to her parents about a trip that she's going to take with her friends to, to, on this European vacation. And so her and her friend lie to her parents. They, they, they rebel. They get on an airplane. They fly out to, to Europe without any adult supervision. And when they get to Europe, and if you guys have seen the movie, it's a horrendous scene, um, every parent's nightmare, uh, the daughters get abducted. They get taken. Hence the name of the movie, Taken. And, and it's, a, it's a hard scene to watch, but in the midst of the kidnapping of the, the, the girls in this movie, I believe one of the best scenes in all of cinema history happens. And it happens in the midst of the girls being taken. So the girls are being taken, and, and Liam Neeson's daughter, realizing she's in trouble, grabs her phone and she calls her dad. And the reason she calls her dad is because, you know, he's Liam Neeson. And so she calls him. And she's like, this is terrible, things are going terrible, I'm, you know, it's, it's awful, I don't know what to do. And so Liam Neeson, very calm, is saying, okay, you need to get under the bed. Okay, now, now you need to do this, now be very quiet, now move into this room, now do this. And he's directing her on how to do it. Well, uh, unfortunately, they're unable to stop the kidnapper from taking her, and the circumstance becomes such that Liam Neeson finds himself on the phone with the man who has just taken his daughter. And this scene, when Liam Neeson is talking to the man who took his daughter, is the best one of the best scenes of all time in movie history. And and rather than explain it to you, I thought I'd just show it to you. All right, so let's just watch this clip from Taken. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Liam Neeson is the baddest man alive. By far. is that like the greatest scene ever? he's just so so tough right and if you guys have never seen the rest of the movie taken here's the rest of the movie little spoiler alert which is not a surprise the rest of the movie is Liam Neeson making good on the plan that he just proposed on the phone (laughs) I will find you I will hunt you down and I will kill you and that's pretty much the movie right (laughs) is is Liam Neeson here is not making a threat okay he is like this isn't a threat this is a fact This is what's going to happen if you don't let my daughter go. And that is the rest of the movie, Taken. Now, when I first saw the movie, Taken, um, and I was watching that scene, and Liam Neeson was on the phone, I had this thought go through my mind when I watched it. And the thought that went through my mind was this, I thought to myself, now that is Genesis chapters one to three. And some of you are like, that's exactly my thought when I watched it Such a dork, dude. No, but that's my thought. I thought that's Genesis 1 to 3. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? Well, the same sequence of events that we see in the movie Taken is the exact same sequence of events to some extent that we see take place in the Bible. And so in Genesis chapters 1 to 3, you actually see a sequence of three things happen. Here's the three things that you see there's peace, there's rebellion, and then there's a phone call, there's a promise. And those three things happen in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There's peace, there's a rebellion. And then there's a promise. There's a phone call that's made. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Well, that's what I want to spend our time getting into. And so let's just start at the top. And let's talk about, at the beginning, there was peace. All right? So if you've got your Bibles, glance down with me at Genesis chapter 1. And you go ahead and open them up. And I actually don't want you to read it. I just want you to look at it. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and look at it from afar. Take a look at it. I want you to notice, at first glance, you probably already notice that Genesis chapter 1 looks different than the rest of Genesis, right? What do I mean by that? You notice that it has indentations. Uh, many of your translations, you can see that that's the case. You notice it has almost what looks like stanzas, right? Uh, why is that? By the way, anytime you read your Bible and you see that, that literarily it takes a different form, you always want to ask, why is that, okay? Now, the reason that's the case is because Genesis chapter one is poetry, okay? It is, it is Hebrew poetic literature, and, uh, and so let me, let me just explain that for a minute. We know that not only because of its form, but also because it implements literary devices that are utilized by Hebrew poetry. So example, there is parallelism in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, there is repetition in Genesis chapter 1. And so you probably already noticed just at first glance that there is a ton of repetition. Do you notice that every stanza begins with the same phrase? And God said... And so we see it all throughout it in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. In verse 6, and God said, let there be a vault. And verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. It's a repetition. Why? Because it's poetic. And not only do we see repetition in the beginning of each stanza, but each stanza ends with repetition. And you'll notice if you look at your Bibles, it always starts off, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. You hear it? It has meter. It has rhyme to it. Why is that? Because it's poetry. In fact, a lot of commentators believe that Genesis chapter 1 was actually intended to be sung. It's supposed to be a song. And so we see the repetition in it. Each stanza begins with repetition. Each stanza ends with repetition. And in the middle of each stanza, we also see repetition. And what is it? It's that with each progressive step of creation, God declares it is good. So God creates. On this day, God created and, and then it was good. And then there was evening and there was morning and it was the first day, right? And we see that all throughout Genesis chapter one. God saw it was good. He saw it was good. He saw it was good. When he creates man, he says it is very good, right? And why is all this happening? Well, because it's a poem. It's a poem. And what does the poem tell us? It tells us this, that God is a loving creator who created, th- created everything good and created everything perfect. And it's a poem that we have. It's a creation poem. Now, let me just just say something about that real quick, and almost as a quick aside, okay? Just a quick aside on this, because I think it's worth mentioning. um, Many of you know that Genesis chapter 1 is a chapter in the Bible that is met with a lot of confusion and a lot of controversy, and the confusion and controversy that surrounds Genesis chapter 1 is usually about how are we supposed to understand this, right? And so there's a group of people, for example, that will say, well, the way that we understand Genesis chapter one is that we're supposed to understand it historically and scientifically. And so because of that, the Bible says that God created the, the universe in six days. That means that God created the universe in six literal days and that we need to scientifically and historically try to prove that that's true. And so there are a group of people, many people, many of us believe that God created the universe in six literal days. Well, there's another group of people that say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, because Genesis chapter one is poetry, And and, and poetry isn't supposed to be read like science. It's not supposed to be read like history. And so that means that all of this is really a myth, right? It's a folklore. It's not intended to be taken as true. And so it's not true. It's just a good song. It's just a neat poem, right? That's all it is. And let me just say on that, regardless of where you stand on this issue, that I think there's a consideration that you need to have because there can be dangers on either side of this. And let me just explain what I mean. Um, One of the things... Throughout this whole series, whenever you're reading the Bible, you always have to ask the question, what is it that I'm reading? Because how you understand something, um, it, understanding what you're reading is going to determine how you understand it. Right? So let me give you an analogy. I could, I could tell you a story in a number of different ways. Right? We, can, we can tell stories in a lot of different ways. So for example, if I wanted to tell you the story of how I met Jess, how I met my wife, I could do that in a number of ways. Um, I could do that scientifically. If you said, how did you meet Jess? I could, I could give you a scientific story. And it might look something like this. I could say, well, upon first observation, Jessica's appearance had a neurological effect on me. And a rush of endorphins surged through my body. This resulted in a chemical imbalance within my brain that caused me to act in a manner that was abnormal. Right? <laughs> I could tell you that. Now, I would sound weird if I told you that. It's not very romantic. Right? It doesn't sound very romantic. Not a pickup line. Right? Like, hey, baby. Hey, baby. You create a chemical imbalance in my brains. will want to go out? You know, it's not going to work out. But, but I could tell it that way. I could if I wanted to, right? Um, I could tell that, that story historically. I could tell you this about our story. I could say I, Tony Lavigny, son of John Lavigny II, uh, first met Jessica on June 5th, 2005. She walked into 754 Gent Road at 8.15 p.m. Subsequently, on August 14, 2005, we had the Define the Relationship DTR conversation at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> Right? Again, that's, that might sound more like a police report than like a romantic story of how I met my wife. But I could tell it that way if I wanted to, right? Or I could tell it to you as poetry, couldn't I? I could tell you as poetry, and it might look like this: On the enchanted evening, I first beheld my beloved. My heart leapt within me. Lo, my soul was brought to. I don't know why I sound like Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> My soul was brought to life for the first time, and my love was like a thousand oxen, strong and unable to be tamed. Right? <laughs> I can tell you the story. I can tell you that way. Now, let me ask you a weird question, all right? I told you that story three different ways. Let me ask you a strange question. Which one of those is true? You're like, what? I'm like, yeah, which one's true? You're like, well, that's a weird question. It depends, right? And, 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 and the reality is they're all true. All three of them are true, but you have to know what you're reading to understand how to interpret it. You got to know that, right? And so if I was to take my poem and give it to a scientific community, it would make no sense to them. They would say, his heart leapt? Look at this. That makes no sense. That's not, you know, that's not even, that's not even possible. That's, you know, technically that's impossible. And they would do that, right? If I, they would look at my, my claim, my love is like a thousand oxen, they'd be like, that's not even, that's even testable. You can't even quantify that, right? And why? Because that's a different language, and so listen, there, there are two dangers as it relates to reading any passage of the Bible, but especially Genesis chapter 1. The dangers are this. Some people say, well, it's poetry. And so it's not intended to be taken as truthful. It, it's, it's just a song. It's just whatever. It's folklore. Well, hold on a minute. Just because it's a poem doesn't mean it's not true. Right? Now, there's another community of people that say, well, we're, this is scientific and it's historical and we're supposed to analyze and we're supposed to take it this way. Now, wait a minute. Was that the author's intent when he first wrote it, though? was intended to be a scientific dialogue about how God created everything. And it's very important that every time you study the Bible, you understand what you're reading, okay? Because context helps determine meaning. I thought that um, some commentators put it well. There was some writers of Old Testament survey book, and they put it this way. I thought this was really insightful. They said, Genesis is not a book of science. Though scientists are right to investigate its claims. So he says, it's not primarily a book of science, though it includes science. That's not its aim says, it's not a book of biographies, though much uh, much can be learned from the lives of men and women portrayed in these pages. It's not a book of history, though history is the path that it follows. He says, it's a book of theology. That's what Genesis is about, right? Um, I like the way Galileo put it. Galileo said this. He said, the Bible is not preeminently concerned with telling us how the, how the heavens go. The Bible instead is most concerned with telling us how to go to heaven. Now, I think they're onto something, you see, because what they're teaching us is you have to understand what you're reading to be able to determine what its meaning is. There's so much confusion, so much controversy that people have about the Bible is simply because they never ask the question, who wrote this? Why did they write it? To what audience? And how would the original audience have heard that? Okay? We are reading someone else's mail. And so we've got to figure out what's the circumstance in which it was written, and that will help us determine context determines meaning it's very very important. So, having said that then, here's a real question then. What is the context in which this book was written? So, let me just give you a little bit of background because I think it'll help us understand Genesis chapter 1 better. So, here's just a little bit, a little bit of background on Genesis. We know that Genesis was written by Moses, most widely accepted, written by Moses to the Israelites after being freed from Egyptian captivity. So, the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians for over 400 years. They were released, and they were in the wilderness and it's in this circumstance that Moses, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of Genesis. Another thing that we know is that the Israelites have just spent more than 400 years exposed to Egyptian mythology and polytheistic worldview. Okay? And so the, so the Israelites were in Egyptian captivity, which meant that they were immersed in Egyptian culture. These guys were well acquainted with Egyptian mythology They were well acquainted with polytheism, which, by the way, is the worshiping of several gods, right? The Egyptians had a god for everything. And so the Israelites now have just come out of that culture as slaves for 400 years. They were immersed in this culture. And then the Bible tells us that they were delivered. The other thing we know is that they had witnessed the power of God firsthand. And so if you guys have read Exodus, many of you know that the circumstances by which the Israelites were delivered out of Egyptian captivity was anything short of miraculous. It was incredible. Um, the, the the ten plagues, uh, the the Red Sea parting, so you need to understand this audience was one that was not asking the question, "Does God exist?" Now they knew that. They they actually had just seen that firsthand. The question they were asking is, "Who is this God, who just saved us?" And 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 it's in that context that Moses writes this poem. And by the way, poems would have been a very normal way of of communicating in an Egyptian audience. And so he's communicating to a certain group of people in a certain way. And this poem reveals some stuff about God. And what does it reveal? Well, I'm just going to tell you that to the original audience, there are a few things about Genesis chapter one that would have been absolutely earth shattering to the first hearers. So one of them is this. One of the things that the first Israelites, when they heard this poem, they would have been shocked by, is that there is one God who has created everything. Remember, they just came from Egypt where they worshiped the sun and they worshiped the moon and they worshiped the stars and they worshiped the sandwich. They worshiped everything, right? They have a God for everything. And so now, now Moses says, no, 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 there is one God and he created everything. And they all would have been like, whoa, that is a paradigm shift. That is countercultural for us, right? And that would have been, and the other thing that would have been shocking to these guys was that God created the universe and he created it to be good. He created it on purpose, he created it in an ordered way. He took time. He declared that it was good. And that would have been earth-shattering for these guys because, again, when you look at the, the, the early creation accounts that the Egyptians believed, things like the Epic of Gilgamesh and stuff like that, you notice that the, that, the, that the earth and that the people on the earth and humanity was always a result of some cosmic violence. So the gods were up here fighting, and they had a war, and then somehow through that war, earth came about and people happened. And, and, and many creation accounts, they tell us that we're an accident, that we were never meant to be here. Well, all of a sudden, Moses comes along, and he says, no, 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 there was a God, and he was good, and he was benevolent, and he made this world, and he made it for us. He made it for us. In fact, when you read Genesis chapter 1, one of the things that becomes really apparent is that the crown jewel of all of God's creation is humanity. That's why if you, if you even glance down at Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice... Every day it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. But on the day he made man, in verse 27, it says, so God created. That day God didn't speak. That day God got his hands dirty. God made. It was the crown jewel of his creation was humanity. Uh, we are told that every day God created it was good, it was good, it was good. But the day he made man, it was very good. The crown jewel of creation. And all of a sudden Moses is telling these people, God made the universe. He made it perfect. In the beginning there was peace. And God created it to be such that we would have peace with ourselves, we'd have peace, peace with the world, we would have peace with God. Everything was intended to be a perfect harmony. And when you read Genesis chapter two, it's a continuation of that peace. Genesis chapter two explains to us that God creates woman and that there's this incredible depth of relationship that they now share together, that they're united and that they're united not only with each other, but also with God. And the Bible tells us that in the beginning, there was peace, everything was in harmony with everything. But just like in the movie Taken, peace is very short-lived. In fact, it only lasts two chapters. And we get to chapter three, and we see that suddenly things take a turn for the worse, and there is a rebellion. There's a rebellion in the garden. So let's just take a look with me at chapter three, if you just flip over a page. Look what happens in the first one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. See, now, now this passage, it suddenly gets to chapter three, it introduces us to a new character. The Bible says that there's a serpent that's in this garden. And some of you are like, a serpent, who's that? Well, that's Satan, the Bible tells us. In fact, in Revelation, the Bible calls Satan the serpent of old. And so we know that this is Satan of the one who has deceived Eve. Now I know immediately some of you are like, yeah, you see, that's my problem right there. You're talking about it. Now you're talking about a devil. You're talking about a talking serpent. Is that, is that where we're going? Really? Talk about a guy in a red suit, you know, with horns and a tail and this, you know, is that pitchfork? Is that what we're talking about here? Seriously? Really? And, and listen, I understand um, for many of us today that you might have a hard time accepting something like Satan, but let me just assure you that the Bible is not speaking metaphorically here about this character, Satan. The Bible explains that Satan is very real, uh, that he is very active and that he is an enemy of God. And, and some of you are like, well, I just don't know if I believe that. Okay, okay, that's fine. But let me just say something, that if you don't believe that there is, there is a personality behind the evil and destruction that we see in this world, you have to construct some philosophical worldview that can account for how something as beautiful as humankind can do the terrible and horrendous things that we do to each other. You have to have some answer for the problem of evil. And Genesis chapter three tells us that it's because there was a deceiver and his name is Satan and he is a person. And he comes in and he deceives Eve and he starts by, comes up to her and he starts by, by sowing seeds of suspicion. He says to her, he says, um, did, God, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees. You see what he's doing here, right? It's calling into question the character of God. And so then Eve tries to give an answer, and she, she, she says, well, God, God said we could eat from the trees, but we can't eat from that tree, and we can't touch it, which, by the way, she slightly misquotes God on that. And then the enemy comes in, Satan comes in, and he gives the lie, the classic lie, the foundational lie, the lie that exists in every human heart to this day, your heart and my heart. And the lie is basically this that to enjoy life means that you have to run from the author of life. And God looks at Eve and He says to her, Well, you won't certainly die. The only reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because He knows that if you do, you're going to be like Him. And God is so controlling, and God is so repressive, and God is so restrictive. And who's he to tell you what's good for you anyway? You do what's good for you. You define good for yourself. And this is the fundamental lie that exists in every human heart, in your heart and in my heart, that to enjoy life, that means that I need to run from the author of life. You hear it in the way we talk, don't you? Well, you know, eventually I'll get get around to the religious thing, but first I want to have some fun. You know what you just said? Basically, you just said, God is a cosmic killjoy and to experience real life means that I need to find it for myself. It's the lie. That's the lie. What what Eve doesn't see is that everything that God created was a yes. God said, it's good, it's good, it's good, and it's all for you. It's all for you, Adam and Eve. You, yes, 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 yes. a million yeses. And then he said, there's one no, just one. Just one no. And and Satan comes up and he says, how restrictive is that God of yours? And you can tell Eve buys it. You know why? Because the Bible says that she looked, in verse six, she looks at the tree and you know what she says about it? She says, oh, that's good. She saw that it was good. Now, isn't that fascinating. Genesis one and two, God is the one who's declaring what's good. It's good, it's good. And because of God's declaration of good, there's peace. Because of God's declaration of good, there is harmony. But Eve, for the first time, looks at something that God said is not good. And she says, well, I think it's good. Well, now she's defining good on her own terms. What she's saying is, I don't care what God says. I don't care what anyone else says. I'm the one who determines what's right for me. And isn't this true? This is the foundation of sin in all of our lives. I don't care what God says is good. I define good on my own terms. I don't care what anyone else says, right? And she buys it. The Bible says she eats it. And not only does she eat it, but she takes it and she gives it to her husband, which the Bible tells us that he was there the whole time. Which I'm like, what was he doing this whole time? You know, I'm probably playing on his phone, you know? He's probably like checking his fantasy football score or something dumb like that, you know? And she's like, here, eat this. He's probably, like, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And he does. And listen, immediately, immediately after they eat of the fruit, the Bible says that everything is broken, all peace is gone, paradise is lost. And the depiction it gives us in in Genesis chapter seven is so sad. I just want you to look at it though. It It says, then their eyes were open. Both of their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden of the cool of day. And they hid from him. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to them and he said, where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that that I commanded you not to eat from? Verse 12, the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit in in the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and and I ate it. Man, you read this, what a bleak description. The Bible says that, that everything is now in disharmony, that there's alienation on many levels. But one of the first things you see what happens as a result of the fall is there's alienation from self. It's one of the first things that happens, isn't it? As soon as they eat from the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible says that immediately their eyes are open and what's the first thing they noticed? That they were naked and they were ashamed and they had to cover themselves up. And when God came to see them, they hid. Because they were naked, they found shame all of a sudden. And you see, the Bible explains to us that because things were created perfect, but because there was a rebellion, that to this day, we are still alienated from ourselves. Adam and Eve, before this, they were completely content with who God created them to be. They were totally accepting of themselves and satisfied because of who God created them to be. But all of a sudden, now they eat from the fruit and they're self-conscious, they're self-aware. They're embarrassed and they have to hide. And isn't it true that, that the repercussions that we see in Genesis chapter one continue to this day, that to this day, we are alienated from ourselves. And you hear it in the way we talk, say things like, I'm just trying to find myself. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure myself out. This is why self-help exists. This is why self-image is such a big deal. This is why we try to keep up with the Joneses. This is why we are not intrinsically satisfied with the person that God created us to be, but we are always chasing after some other picture of who we think we ought to be. We are alienated from ourselves. And the Bible says all of that flows from Genesis chapter 3. All of that flows from the rebellion, and it's not the way God intended it to be. There's an alienation from ourselves. But not only is there an alienation from ourselves, the Bible explains that there's also an, an alienation from each other. There's relational discord and disharmony that takes place. And so you see it in this passage. What's the first thing that Adam does when when God um, questions him? And says, did you eat from that tree? I told you not to. You see what he does? Rather than taking responsibility and saying, oh, man, God, you know, I, I, I failed. I was supposed to be the leader, and I totally biffed up, and I wasn't doing a good job. What does he do instead? He blame shifts. He says, the woman, you gave me, right? He's like, so apparently it's your problem you guys figure it out. I'm gonna go hang out with the monkeys, right? I say, he's like, I ain't got nothing to do with it, man. And, and blame shifting and self-preservation. And then God looks at Eve. And what's he say to Eve? He says, what did you do? And she says, well, the serpent. He came up and he lied to me. And, and what is this all about? Self-preservation and blaming and pride. And the Bible says that all of that, the relational discord that we face in our lives stems from Genesis chapter, th- Genesis chapter three. And so all of the tension that you feel in your marriage, the blame game and, and the unresolved hostilities and the baggage from your first marriage and the, 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 the brother or sister you haven't talked to in two years because it's their fault. Where's that flow from? Genesis chapter three. God says it wasn't supposed to be that way. But because of rebellion, there is disharmony. Things have been disjointed. There's alienation from ourselves, alienation from each other. And then most importantly, and probably most dishearteningly, I don't know if that's a word, there is, there's alienation from God. The Bible says that now, rather than running to God, they run away from God. God comes down, and because of their guilt and their shame, they hide from him. And to this day, our natural response is not to run to our Heavenly Father. Our natural response is to run away from our Heavenly Father. Many of us have bought the lie that to enjoy life, that means that we need to run away from the author of life. Everything is in disharmony. And what Genesis chapter 3 teaches us is this, is it teaches us that nothing is as it should be. That everything is not as it ought to be. And I think, you guys, honestly... I think you already know this. I don't think I need to teach you this. I think you know this. I think there's something, a suspicion in your heart, an ever-growing impossible-to-ignore suspicion that tells you that things are not like they should be. And every time you flip on the news and you hear about some lunatic gunman who's walked into a school and has taken innocent lives, there's something in you that just says, man, that is just so evil. There's just something so wrong. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And every, every time that you, you, you're, you yourself are taken by an addiction or, or, or you can't keep up with your own standard, isn't it true there's something in you that says, man, I don't, I don't feel like I'm the way I should be. Something is wrong, something is broken. Every funeral that you go to, every time you have a loved one who gets a terminal disease, something wells up inside of you and says, man, this isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't how it's supposed to go. And some people are like, oh, it's just a natural part of life. No, it is not. There's nothing natural about that. This is not the way that God intended it to be. And Genesis chapter three explains to us that it's exactly true. That suspicion that you have in your heart, that things are not as they seem, as they should be, is true. And it's because there was a rebellion. It's not God's fault. It's because there was a rebellion. And it's one of the bleakest scenarios we see in the Bible. And I'll tell you, honestly, it's one of the saddest scenes that we see, but the good news for us is that this isn't the end of the story. For us, this is the beginning. We're only in chapter three, right? Because there's a promise. Because God makes a phone call in Genesis chapter three. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In Genesis chapter three, verse 14, God addresses Satan. And I want you to notice what he says. This is awesome. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then he says something so peculiar in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's a peculiar thing to say. I can only imagine how Moses and, and the first hearers must have interpreted it. They must have been like, that is really weird. We don't know what God is talking about there. She's going to have an offspring. You know, she, she's going to have an offspring, and then it's going to be a he, and then, and then he's going to crush, crush your head, and you're going to strike. What is that talking about? What is that talking about, right? It must have been confusing them. But we know what this is. We know what this is. That one day God is going to send one who's born of a woman. It's going to be a boy, and He's going to grow. And the enemy is going to do, inflict harm on him. He's gonna strike his heel. He will be crucified. Oh, but he's gonna crush the head of the enemy. What is this, man? This is a promise that God is making that I will come and I will save. It's a promise that he's making. You guys, when I read this, this might sound kind of corny, but when I read Genesis chapter three, verse 15, one of the the thoughts that goes to my mind is I imagine sort of like this is the, the phone call scene, Right? where God is talking to Satan. And I imagine that if this was like the movie, that God would have told Satan something like this. I think he would have said, I know what you've done and I know who you are. If you want ransom, I will give you my own son. I have an unstoppable, immeasurable love that makes a person like me a nightmare for people like you. You have my children. And so I will hunt you down, I will find you, and I will kill you. And my guess is that Satan, knowing that God doesn't make threats, God makes promises shuddered, because he knew that his demise was certain. And you guys, the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is God making good on that plan. And Jesus Christ, who is the more true and perfect Liam Neeson, right, has come to do Damage on the kingdom of Satan, and, and so what is the Bible? What is the Bible? And let me just tell you what it is in a nutshell. Here's what the Bible is. You ready for it? The Bible is God's rescue plan. If anyone asks you what's the Bible, you can tell them in a nutshell: it's God's rescue plan. And put it another way: the Bible is God's revealed story of salvation. That's what it is. That's what the whole. That's what unites the whole thing. That's the meta narrative. That's the string that ties the whole thing together. And so when you read the Bible, you'll notice it's very selective. It's gonna give you history, but it's not gonna give you all the history because its point isn't history. It's gonna give you science, but it's not gonna give you all science because its point is not science. What's the point of the Bible? It's telling you a story. And what's the story it's telling you? The plan that God put in place to rescue us, to restore everything back to the way that it was supposed to be, to destroy Satan and to destroy sin and to destroy death. And the Bible explains that that's the story of the Bible. You know, that it's interesting. The Bible doesn't just tell us where it starts, but the Bible also tells us where the story ends. And I just want to show this to you real quick. In Revelation, the Bible explains the end of all things. And here's what it says in Revelation chapter 21. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he's going to dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. Does that sound familiar? That's Genesis 1 again, back to peace with God. He's gonna wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then he said to me, it's done. What's done? My plan is done. I am the alpha, I am the omega, I am the beginning and I am the end. It begins with peace and it ends with peace and everything in between is how God accomplishes that. That's what your Bible is. You see, if there was no human rebellion and no sin, the Bible would be a pamphlet. It'd be like two pages, right? But because of rebellion, we have all of this explaining to us how God has come to rescue us, okay? I'm gonna ask the band to come up and as they do, I just want to, I just want to tell you where we're going for the next 11 weeks, okay? So for the next, 11, this, is, this is a 90 day journey. We've got two weeks down, 11 weeks left. And the next 11 weeks, I wanna explain as we go through the Bible, we want to explain how this is the story of, of salvation. This is God's rescue plan. And we're going to do that the next 11 weeks under three headings. And so here are the three headings that we're going to go through together. We're going to talk about what we're saved from, what we're saved from. We're going to talk about what we're saved by. And then we're going to talk about what we're saved for. Okay. So each week um, they're going to fall under these headings and we're going to explain how the Bible teaches us the progression of salvation. The Bible, all right? Well, let me just encourage you that if you're a person who has never embraced this person, Jesus Christ, and the salvation that he has offered you, it is here for you. God has sent his son to save us, and that was the purpose in which he came. Let's pray. Well, oh, God, I just want to say thank you for your word to us this morning, and um, Lord, it's amazing to me that you yourself were the one who has come to save us from a slavery and a bondage that we put ourselves in and that we cannot get ourselves out of. But the truth is, God, you made a promise. You, you, you promised us that you would send a deliverer to come, that he would be born of a woman and you would strike his heel, but he would crush your head. And we know that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would cling to you. I pray that we would put our faith in you, our trust in you, our hope in you, realizing that you're our only way out. And so Lord, encourage us with these words today. I pray that we would go from this place with a a deeper love for you and a deeper desire to read your word. And we ask these things in Christ's name.